Welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each episode, we pick a recently published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. For as long as Herman Melville's Moby Dick has been a staple of the American literary canon, one element often goes unnoticed. The ship commanded by the monomaniacal Ahab on his quest to slay the great white whale is named the Pequod, just one letter of difference from Pequot, a native nation living within what is now New England. Perhaps Melville was just participating in the widespread romantic nostalgia of the age, when many corporate enterprises and commercial vessels took the name of supposedly disappearing and noble Indians. Or maybe he was simply gesturing at the reality of the industry. In the middle decades of the 19th century, when Moby Dick takes place, Native men from tribes and nations in New England constituted a huge portion of the whaling workforce, some spending decades at seas, encountering diverse peoples across two oceans, and invigorating their economically marginalized reservations with vital income. These two often forgotten seamen finally have their chronicler. Professor of History at the University of Connecticut, Nancy Shoemaker is the author or editor of seven books, The latest, just released from the University of North Carolina Press, is Native American Whalemen and the World, Indigenous Encounters and the Contingency of Race. I began by asking her to lay out the size and the scope of the whaling industry in the 19th century. Well, the 19th century whaling industry, which is uh, famous from Moby Dick, of course, um, originated around the mid-17th century. Uh, on Long Island, in East Hampton and South Hampton, uh, and English colonists uh, uh, worked with Indians in uh, ways that Indians may have accepted to some extent, but that became increasingly exploitative. Um, but the English colonists began the, the sort of industrial whaling. Uh, they were after only two things: whale oil and baleen, or whalebone, as they called it, and they employed Indians in great numbers uh, as workers in this industry. Beginning when so, did they start Did they start to employ great numbers around, of Native people? Yeah, around 1650 or so, mid-17th okay. century on Long Island, and then it, uh, it began uh, Cape Cod Towns did that, and then uh, Nantucket also started, and they all used Indian laborers. Hmm. So... Then the whales that were right offshore became scarce because of overhunting, and the industry moved offshore into the Atlantic by the mid-1700s. And uh, so by the 19th century, which is the focus of my book, um, they were going around the world. Mm. You know, they went around uh, Cape Horn to whale in the Pacific Ocean in the early 1790s. And... It was uh, similar in structure to the 200-year-old, you know, whaling industry that had started uh, on Long Island and Cape Cod and Nantucket. Mm. Yes, and so Indians continued to be in this uh, workforce as laborers, Mm. along with uh, many other, uh, it was a very diverse uh, whaling uh, labor force, and increasingly so, uh, in the 19th century, as a lot of foreign laborers uh, were picked up along the way. 
Did Native people work uh, in this industry in a larger proportion than, than their overall population in the in the region? I mean, was this how did it become that this was a key industry that uh, that Native people were working in? Okay, that's a that goes um, again back to the sort of 17th century. Sure, sure. So, uh, the longer history here, uh, th- there's some dispute about whether Indians themselves uh, whaled in southern New England. You mm. know, hunted whales. Um, I tend to think not, not that there would be more evidence of that if if they had systematically had um, hunted whales, particularly large whales. And uh, but they had. There's no doubt that they, the Indians, uh, the Algonquian-speaking Indians of Southern New England and Long Island, that they uh, invested a lot of uh, their culture and economy in whale strandings. And uh, so there's a, a rich cultural lore of uh, whale rights that uh, Sachems held, the, the leaders of uh, Native communities held these sort of sovereign rights to whales that stranded on the beach. So when the English colonists arrived, they knew whaling was profitable. Uh, the Mayflower has all kinds of uh, sightings of whales and all this excitement on the possibility among the Mayflower uh, separatists that settled Plymouth that they would be able to, to start a whaling industry um, but whaling requires lots of skills um, and specialized equipment, uh, none of which they had, and uh, Indians didn't necessarily have that either, uh, so far as we know. And um, But gradually it, it developed, uh, and they worked from the beginning. Indians were probably the majority. We don't have exact numbers, but probably the majority of the labor force. By the 19th century, of course, the Native communities in New England are completely overwhelmed uh, by uh, for English European settlement, and they num- their numbers have declined uh, from disease and warfare and uh, removals, and uh, whaling also probably had an effect on the decline in population because it's such a hazardous occupation. So they were the majority, and around sort of 1800, where I have uh, the better records because I used a lot of crewless as my sort of research method. Uh, from the crewless, you see uh, who people are, uh, their names, their birthplaces, uh, their age, and so forth. And so uh, it, it doesn't have a column for race. Mm-hmm. But there are various, uh, there is a column for complexion from which it's, it's possible to impute imperfectly what uh, racial uh, heritage some of these uh, men might have associated with. And around 1800, 1810, on these crew um, I would guess, I, I don't know if I systematically calculated this from my data, but I would guess that about... Um, well, I do have this in the book somewhere, uh, how many were Indian uh, on these on these coolers. But there were also many African-Americans uh, and people who were both or mixed, white, Indian, and black. 
And then, uh, so they were uh, men of color, you could say, uh, were a substantial proportion. Um, but then by, um, the, the whaling industry really takes off in the 1830s with uh, a new focus on sperm whales. Uh, the spermaceti wax that's in sperm whales' heads uh, is burns very cleanly, and so it made the ideal candle. And so the huge industry, you know, out of this is what uh, led to uh, New Bedford rising uh, as the premier whaling capital in the world, and um, hundreds, hundreds of whale ships, you know, out at, out at sea. Uh, collecting this stuff, and so they needed more labor then. They had to look beyond New England for labor, and that's where you get people like Herman Melville, uh, you know, being hired, uh, recruiters in New York and Philadelphia uh, looking for uh, native-born white uh, or black men uh, to work in the whaling industry, and uh, particularly also the rise of Pacific Islanders, Azorians and Cape Verdeans. Mm. And um, so because the industry expands, the labor force expands, the native population of New England is not expandable. I mean, there are limits to how many, you know, these are small communities by 19, I mean, 1830 of, you know, just several thousand people, uh, only a number of which are, are men of whaling age, right? But nearly all of them go whaling. So which, uh, which communities are, are we talking about specifically? You can introduce us to some of them. Uh, I know there are many uh, Native communities that make up this uh, industry, but what are the, some of the, the primary ones people are coming from in, in the whalemen that you researched? Okay. Um, I spent a lot of time out on um, Martha's Vineyard and Cape Cod because uh, Wampanoag whalemen were probably the most active, and the uh, reservations and um, Today, or the tribal communities today uh, that have this um, whaling past are the uh, Mashpee Wampanoag on uh, Cape Cod uh, and uh, the Aquina uh, or Gayhead tribe, um, which is also Wampanoag. Uh, and then pretty much everyone else along the southern New England coastline. So uh, Shinnecock on Long Island, very active. Uh, very interesting how uh, nearly all of them were whalemen, and they would often uh, go on ships together. So you might have one ship with a crew of 30, which has like seven Shinnecock men. That was actually quite common. Um, and some Montauk uh, from uh, Long Island, uh, uh, Pequot and Mohegan in Connecticut, Narragansett in Rhode Island. Those um, are, are sort of the majority. Mm-hmm. And of course, in uh, in tell me if I'm misremembering this, but the the vessel in Moby Dick in in Herman Melville's book is called the Pequod, uh, which is a, a reference to the Pequod. Is that am I remembering that right? Yes, yes. That's... Moby Dick is uh, full of this sort of um, typical New England romanticism right. about Indians, and uh, I do have a chapter in my book that's about. Whale ship names, mm-hmm. uh, whale ships that are named after Indians, and um, a lot of them came out of uh, were built in Falmouth, Massachusetts, and uh, that they they were very popular. There was um, 
uh, right after the Seminole, Second Seminole War, I think it would be, mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden New Bedford has three whale ships named Osceola. Wow. The Osceola 1, the Osceola 2, the Osceola 3. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, I'm remembering that right. Yeah, it's actually continuing um, to this day. That was quite common. I, yeah. I, I just was recently mm-hmm. in um, Hamilton, Ontario, which has a, a sort of very active industrial ship front. And I remember seeing a number of industrial ships uh, that had either native imagery on them uh, or native names. And, of course, that's a different sort of a, a related but different history in Canada. But it is something that, that continues. Um, yeah, it does seem connected to, um, I mean, there, there were also 19th century U.S. ships of war that were named after uh, Indian tribes. And um, I think it's akin to Apache helicopters right. today and sports mascots, a kind of um, evoking of the nostalgic past and a certain sort of, uh, in most cases, sort of, well, I don't know, they're diverse. I mean, the ones that, the ships that were built in Falmouth, were almost entirely what I call helpmates. So, you know, they were um, uh, the Indians who the English saw as friendly and who helped in, in the stories told about them. That, that may not be historically what they actually did, but in the stories that English colonists told about them, they were cast as, as helping. Um, uh, so Abashanks, for instance, uh, a squaw sachem, of um, sort of, uh, I think near like Mount Hope, kind of between where Rhode Island and Massachusetts are now. And I'm not actually sure where she was from originally, but Wampanoag, and I believe, and um, uh, the the sort of lore of these sachems and Indian rulers had, you know, Indians they could be remembered in this very nostalgic way, yeah, so what, uh, what by is, the American. Yeah. What what is? Can you talk a bit about that whaling industry, the the sort of corporate structure? I mean, who owned these vessels, especially as they're expanding in the 1830s? Are these individual businessmen in New England, or, or are they conglomerating into larger companies? Um. Yes. So they do become. Uh, most of them do become sort of larger corporate enterprises uh, in the mid 19th century. Um, so, but they were, tended to be owned by a consortium of uh, white New Englanders, uh, or in the case of Sag Harbor on Long Island, you know, um, whites who, who lived in Sag Harbor or who knew people in the area of Sag Harbor. And so whaling was a very high-risk industry, and so the owners liked to spread the risk around, and they did that in multiple ways. Uh, one was that there were usually many owners of one vessel because if the vessel wrecked uh, somewhere and, you know, everything was lost, then you, you didn't lose as much and, uh, it, it is, as you would if you were the sole owner. Uh, so a few might have been owned by one person, but that was really rare. And usually there were at least four, sometimes as many as 16 or more uh, owners who owned a share of the ship. Now, they also spread risk around uh, in uh, how they paid their labor. So whaling was not wage work. It was uh, paid according to shares, and those shares were called a lay. So a man who um, 
started out, let's, uh, he's really a boy, let's say, a typical age at which an Indian in 1830 might start his whaling career would be 14 years old. And he would start as a green hand, and he would usually be paid at that time maybe one out of 140. So his share of the profits was one over 140. Uh, but then they extracted all kinds of fees uh, from that. But they were all seen, uh, it was, um, all the laborers were seen as having an investment in the business too. Uh, partly the, um, under the assumption that then they would be motivated uh, to work, but really it was because of this uh, desire on the part of owners to spread risk around. So it was a very... Um, for the laborers, it was very risky because they could go away for three or four years and return with nothing because they weren't paid wages. Um, and so they were very subject to uh, the economic uh, conditions. If uh, whale oil was glutting the market, when their ship returned, even if they had a successful voyage, they could have a losing voyage. Uh, you know, Even if they had a lot of whale oil, it, it wouldn't sell for enough to, to pay the, uh, their way. Um, now, on the other hand, they could also get these windfall profits uh, so they could come back with a very successful voyage and the economic conditions were good and a man could, in, you know, after, yes, he was at sea for three or four years perhaps, but he could kind of walk home uh, or take a, you know, get home somehow and with like $1,200 uh, in his earnings. Um, and so whaling was economically very important uh, in terms of the income it produced for, for Native communities because it was, I think, their best opportunity uh, to make a living, even though it was so risky. There was a period of time, at least before uh, the industry really changes in the 1830s, that some people were coerced into work aboard whale ships. How did that happen? I mean, how did captains or companies go about doing this, at least in the late 18th and early 19th century? And then, and then what changed in the middle part of the decade, uh, the middle part of the century? Uh, yes, I would say this is um, sort of uh, an important point in my book because uh, the, his, the previous uh, historians who've written about this topic have uh, tended to look at the earlier periods up to around 1820, 1830. Um, they haven't written that much, but there are articles, you know, several important articles um, on this. Um, and they sort of established this um, understanding of this history as one where it was entirely coerced. And to me, that didn't entirely make sense because if you go out to, for instance, uh, they had... Uh, now the town of Aquina on Martha's Vineyard uh, and where the, the uh, Aquina tribe is. And you talk to people there, they are so proud of their whaling history, even though they acknowledge, you know, they recognize it was also exploitative, but it couldn't be entirely coercive because why would people be proud of it and, and the men who were involved in it? So um, the uh, coercion uh, happened largely through, well, it happened, there were a lot of different mechanisms. Um, one of the most common was uh, uh, debt indenture uh, or the, apprentice, uh, the apprenticeship system for impoverished poor people. 
so it was uh, English colonists and then the uh, uh, overseers of Indian reservations appointed uh, after the revolution uh, who were, you know, white men who lived near the Indian reservations. Um, they were all um, uh, kind of very eager. Uh, you know, they saw Indians as a sort of indigent, uh, intemperate population. And so they used the legal system and these uh, systems of debt indenture and apprenticeship uh, to send Indians to sea. And uh, there are a few instances that uh, that I talk about in my book that were clearly, you know, outright coercion in the uh, 1820s even. But then what happens in the 1830s is that the industry becomes you know, again, it's this demand for labor. The industry grows really quickly in the 1830s um, that Indians are sort of revalued uh, as officers, uh, as men of responsibility and skill, uh, not as the, the sort of exploited class who will be used up until they um, drop. Uh, and so... Uh, you see in the 1830s and into the late 19th century that Indians who stayed with the industry uh, rose very quickly into positions as mates or officers. Um, and so it's partly because of the demand for labor, but also the ways in which Indians, um, because of the classic stereotypes about Indians as, har- uh, as being skilled uh, with spears and throwing harpoons and uh, having an instinct for chasing animals, those sorts of stereotypes feed um, the, the create possibilities for Indians because the stereotype implies that they are naturally good at this job, um, and that so that the labor demands do not create opportunities for black men, for mm-hmm. instance, uh, who are increasingly. Uh, sequestered to the service positions of cook and steward. Um. So there are a number of angles um, that you could emphasize in telling this story, and and you explore many of them, whether it's labor or gender or the circuits of this globalizing economy and so on. But you, you choose to foreground what you call the contingency of race, which is in the subtitle of your book. And I think it's a really interesting choice, especially because as one of your central points here, um, the native whale men you study don't actually spend a great deal of time talking about race, about their native identity in the diaries and accounts that you found. I'm wondering how you, arro- you arrived at this um, interpretive framework and, and what do you mean by contingency here? Yeah, well, it was certainly it wasn't what I planned from the outset. Um, I planned from the outset one book, that was going to be a kind of chronological history of Indian whaling that was um, mostly a social history. You know, the impact on the community, on the native communities, uh, the, um, uh, what particularly always intrigued me from the beginning was also, um, though this um, facet of indigenous people meeting other indigenous people, you know, indigenous people traveling the world, which is sort of an oxymoron because we always think of, of Europeans coming to Indians, 
not Indians going out and meeting other people who were often called Indians, too. Um, and so um, I had that, that particular structure in mind and was kind of bemused at myself a little bit because um, that didn't seem like uh, the type of book that I was naturally inclined to write or even to read. Um, you know, a history that was, you know, chronological and um, kind of straightforward about the material conditions and the impact and sort of um, uh, similar to something like uh, Jeff Bolster's book, Blackjacks, you know, um, it was, you know, and I was kind of worried that it was going to be the, the Indian version of that, you know, and, but uh, my early interests were, I, I've always been interested in race. That's always been, uh, since I was a graduate student, it's always been one of my uh, strong interests. And um, I worked on it for, uh, you know, it, I'm probably sort of known to some people for an article I wrote quite a long time ago now that's also part of my uh, previous book, A Strange Likeness. So I didn't expect to write about race, but I guess I'm not surprised in the end that my instincts sort of took over there. And um, what really struck me as I was sort of doing the, the putting the final touches on the research and turning to writing was some of the anomalies that I couldn't believe, that I didn't expect even. Um, you know, I never expected that, uh, that Indians would be officers or that I would find Indians had kept journals and logbooks. Um, and, you know, I ended up, I'm sure there are more out there than what I came across, but I think, um, I don't know how many of those, I list them in an appendix in the back, but there are maybe, there are at least 10, maybe there are, are 20 of these uh, Indian authored logbooks and journals. Um, so I never expected that. And then there were these other, I guess one that really seemed so bizarre to me uh, was this idea of the drunk Indian or, or the idea that Indians could be officers in one setting, like on the ship, but that they were regarded back home in New England, the same people, they were regarded back home uh, by their white neighbors in New England as childlike, dependent you know, drunk, intemperate, intemperate, excuse me, intemperate. Um, and particularly there were these, um, uh, you know, because sailors are so often associated uh, with being drunk too. And so are Indians. It's like this, they have this common stereotype, but somehow they um, canceled each other out. So, Indians on ships, even these two guys I feature in this, when I discuss this in the book, these two guys I feature um, who did have a drinking problem, it was quite clear, but the owners didn't really seem to care, and they kept promoting them anyhow because they were excellent whalemen um, and uh, highly regarded by, uh, uh, by you know, very, um, they helped the owners make a profit obviously. And so I see that in terms of the contingency of race that, um, you know, that there's a tendency uh, among scholars who study the history of race to see it as one idea or an idea that might change over time. Uh, there are studies of when was race invented. Um, and uh, so 
uh, I guess by contingency, I just mean that uh, part of its nature, part of race's nature is that it has to allow for exceptions or otherwise it's, it's of no use to people as a way to diminish um, or, you know, a way to take advantage of other people. Um, so for whites, uh, whites found an advantage in uh, white uh, whale ship owners found an advantage in promoting Indians as officers, but they're in a sort of state of denial that this, this never has an impact on uh, what they think about Indians in general. Um, and so the same people could be in one situation. Um, let's say an Indian whaleman in between voyages goes to the, uh, you know, on Martha's Vineyard goes to the store and uh, one of the, uh, you know, his whale ship, the whale ship captain is right there. Um, I don't know what happens in, in that particular exchange if they know each other very well, but that Indian at the store at home is going to be subjected to these uh, stereotypes of being infantile, incapable of looking after himself, um, lazy, all these sorts of things, which are the exact opposite of how they were treated with so much authority on the whale ship because they ser- that served the interests of the owners. Fascinating. How did uh, white workers on whale ships respond to working under uh, native bosses? Well, one of the things that happens is that the Indian Indians who are officers are often not recognized as such, which is also why the previous scholars don't um, see them in the records because... Um, they're not called the Indian. They're just called by their name. And so the most important thing I did methodologically uh, that made this book possible was looking at these crew lists and comparing them to lists of Indians collected uh, by, like, the state of Massachusetts and finding, finding out who these people were. So I looked for individuals. I didn't look for people identified as Indian because I wouldn't have found them very often. I would have, wouldn't have found most of them. Uh, in whaling records, uh, and yet I know, um, you know, so I could read a logbook, and then what I would do is once I knew someone was on a voyage, I would go look for the logbook, I would look for the, uh, see if there were journals by private, you know, um, not the official logbook, but uh, whaling journals kept on that voyage. I'd look for the business papers, uh, newspaper articles, those sorts of things to, to find out about the voyage. And so often in the, like a logbook, for instance, Indians will be mentioned, but no one's mentioning them as Indians. Or as it turns out, the keeper of the logbook is an Indian, but it's not his job to talk about being Indian when he's, you know, uh, first mate on a whale ship. And so he very professionally just talks about being first mate. I think I might have forgotten your question. No, that that's it. Well, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, in, in the 19th century when... Um I mean, especially you mentioned some of these scholars of race and whiteness and, and some of their arguments is that, you know, it's the white working oh, class who right. develop their own sense of their whiteness in relationship to the more degraded status of other racialized people. Right. Um, and so I'm wondering what, you know, I mean, what it was like uh, for a 19th century, I don't know, Irish immigrant uh, aboard a whaling vessel to have as his boss a uh, – uh, Narragansett man or a Shinnecock man. 
Right. So I certainly looked for that. Mm. Um, it, it doesn't come up very often. There, the I think I have maybe three or four. You know, of course, I used in the book all the examples I found of a white man commenting sure. on this, and in. Uh, pretty much every single example of an underling who's white working for an Indian, he says positive things. Mm. He says, um, you know, there's this uh, one Indian from Christiantown on Martha's Vineyard, Henry James, um, who is very early to rise into an officer position. And he's on a ship where one of the... Um, uh, where there's a memoir of this particular voyage written by someone who was uh, um, a green hand, I believe, and who's white. You know, and I, I traced some of these, the whites, too, a little bit in, like, Ancestry.com and so forth to know who they were as well in order to assert that. Um, and so this guy, um, George uh, Colburn Lightcraft, or George Colburn, I can't remember his name exactly, but uh, so he talks about Henry James, the Indian, uh, and he does mention that he's Indian and uh, says uh, his, uh, that he was lucky to be working for him, uh, that the, the captain, the first mate, the second mate were all drunks or, and so forth, uh, and yet the Indian was Christian. Uh, he, was, uh, he, he was the best whaleman in the ship, uh, and... Um, there are, um, I'm sure there are some instances, um, you know, I think the one uh, Indian outside of the famous sort of uh, Paul Cuffey family, uh, the one Indian who became a whaling captain early on was Amos Haskins. And unfortunately, uh, the two voyages where he's captain, I, um, there's no surviving journal or logbook, so I, I can't know exactly what happened. But his first voyage out, um, it was a majority of the workers under him were white men, and the voyage was a disaster. They were deserting, um, and uh, uh, it was an unprofitable voyage. Uh, he was able to go out again, and you could see that someone had made the decision to, you could say, colorize the workforce, that they were you now, he had like uh, four... Uh, Indians, uh, ha- uh, two of them officers working under him. So his first mate was an Indian, George Blaine, um, from the same uh, community, Gayhead. And then his, um, uh, there were also some, uh, more black men who were in the crew. Uh, and unfortunately, that was not a profitable voyage either. It was also a disaster, but for a different reason, which is uh, they uh, felt that picked up an, a fever. Uh, off of the sort of West African coast, and uh, four men died, and others caught the fever, and so they had to return early. And that was kind of the end of his career. But I would I would guess that first voyage. But there were a lot of really um, uh, bad white captains too. I mean, it was actually uh, not a pleasant job to be captain because uh, the white many of the white men in general. Um, were inspired by this sort of uh, working man, white working man's rights movement of the sort of 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, where they become, many of them have this sort of in, uh, sense of entitlement, uh, and they, they don't, uh, they, they see the whale ship as tyrannical, undemocratic, um, and, uh, but they, they, they tend to take their abuses out on African-American men, 
it seems, not so much on American Indians. Um, there are also all these foreigners um, who make them uncomfortable, you know, the um, Portuguese and the Pacific Islanders. So uh, the white men on board a whale ship, yeah, they may not have liked some of the Indians being in charge, but they uh, really didn't like um, a lot of people. And the Indians seem to have been, um, I think they just invested so much in this, doing well in this occupation that they tread very carefully mm. in their relations with others. And so um, I, um, there, there are instances where the Indians do have to enforce discipline if they're officers. You know, they do have to put men in irons. Uh, they do have to flog men. Um, and so they do that. Um, and but the instances where some white man uh, accuses an Indian of this kind of abuse, I, I just didn't run across much of it. Um, uh, even when, yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And conditions are are incredibly dangerous on these ships too, right? I mean, what, what was it like to work aboard this ship uh, in the in the middle of the nineteenth century? Yeah, so it did take a, a toll um, on everybody. Um, it's impossible, you know, there were, it would have been nice if I could have done some sort of comparison of the Indian experience with other groups, but it's actually really difficult uh, to even reconstruct a single voyage in terms of the crew because, you know, particularly these long voyages of four years, um, there are uh, men deserting all the time. They're hiring people who aren't named, you know, at the age of for instance, uh, which is usually the first stop for a whale ship, uh, it was quite common to hire two or three men and just call them Portuguese, you know, and then go to the Cape Verde Islands and hire two or three more and call them Portuguese. Um, and then all the Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders are usually called things like Jack Kanaka, um, John Kanaka, Bill Kanaka. So it's kind of very hard to uh, have a, a static enough um, even though there's phenomenal records in whaling history, it's, it's, you can't really, uh, it would just be a horrific job to try to reconstruct sure. whaling crews for an entire voyage. So you could do it for ones leaving um, uh, because of the crew list being uh, very uh, informative sources. So, oh dear, again, I think I forgot your question. No, I, I, had, I, th- <laughs> I think you actually... Um, <laughs> <laughs> completely answered it. I was just, I, I was curious about, um, Oh, the dangerous conditions. The dangers. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I remember yeah, this one so, map you have of all these ships that it caught fire or something or. Yeah, no, it's, it's, that was, um, actually that was an, an, um, a great map. It was done by, um, Brian Perschel here at, uh, UConn, an undergraduate in our, um, in our map uh, department. Um, uh, I loved what he did with that. Um, the, yeah, so um, it was very, very dangerous, and so I didn't really do anything. I, I did sort of keep track, of course, of, of who died. I, uh, there are some I just lost track of completely. I, I don't know what happened to them, and I always kind of hope I'll, I'll run across them somewhere and figure out what happened to them. But um, a lot, um, uh, I never kind of statistically figured it out among the uh, Indians, but I could kind of do that, I suppose. Uh, a little too late now, I guess. But I think you've done um, quite a lot so, of research already. So. 
Yeah, so what I did was um, I decided to do it from Mashpee um, to do this map, which showed some of the disasters that befell whalemen. Um, now, uh, that isn't uh, actually in those disasters that are in that map, most of the whalemen survived. Um, and so there's, it's just fascinating how, uh, you know, they could shipwreck in the... Um, uh, near Mauritius or something in the Indian Ocean, and they they make their way home and they go out on another whaling voyage. Mm. Um, but yeah, so it was very hazardous for an individual whaleman. The most dangerous, the most frequent cause of death, I would say, is probably falling from a loft, right? Uh, either into the ocean or onto the deck. And so a lot of people die from falling. Um, and I, I do mention the, the sort of different causes of death. Um, Scurvy is, of course, uh, common. Um, other ailments, uh, sickness, a lot just die from consumption, which they could have died from at home as well, of course, because that was the big killer in the 19th century. Um, and uh, very few uh, died while chasing whales, but a few, a few did. They, they died, you know, they were caught in the rope or something, and the whale took them down. Um, and uh, so then there are some dramatic stories of, um, you know, another way was there, when, what happened, how it works is that, you know, they go out in a ship with a crew of, let's say, 40 men, and when they see a whale, they lower several whaleboats, and the whaleboats have crews of six men, one of whom is an officer, one of whom is called the boat steerer, but he's actually the harpooner, and then four men at oars. And so when they see whales, and the right kind of whales, uh, they lower these whale boats and they chase them. And so they could be, like, chasing them for hours. And, um, and then they have to tow, the, if they catch the whale, they have to tow it back to the ship. And so in that process, there are instances where ships lost sight of the boats. And... Uh, they hope that the, the men can somehow make it, you know, to some archipelago uh, or run up a, uh, to another whale ship and be saved. But, you know, there are some men who are just lost at sea. Yeah. So in the, in the second part of your book, and um, you alluded the, to this a bit earlier, um, you explore what happens when, when these crews, often made up largely of uh, indigenous men from New England, uh, make landfall throughout the Atlantic or Pacific world and interact with indigenous inhabitants of other places. Uh, and you say that this can often be a messy affair uh, where perhaps we can see that contingency that you spoke about earlier. Can you recount maybe one or two of these messy affairs? What happens when indigenous crews uh, make landfall throughout uh, the maritime world? Yeah, well, the um, yeah the book has four parts, and these are four settings where race con is configured in a certain way. The mm -hmm. racial expectations about Indians are configured in a certain way. And so the first part is about relations aboard ship. Uh, the second part is about cultural encounters. Um, and that's where I, I use the term messy affair. And it's in contrast, you know, I think... Um, the cultural encounter is just a stock feature in historical studies. And one of the most beautifully written books about uh, 19th century Europeans in the Pacific 
uh, and these sorts of encounters is uh, Greg Denning's Islands and Beaches. And that's a classic cultural encounter narrative where uh, everyone on the ship is European and everyone on the islands are Marquesan because it's Marquesas where it takes place. And um, so you have the, the European and the native. And I have to say, my, my book, Strange Likeness, of course, juxtaposed those two groups completely also. So this is kind of what we do in, often in indigenous studies. Uh, we put Europeans um, in conflict with Indians uh, as Europeans expand into the Americas or uh, we put Europeans in conflict with Pacific Islanders as they expand into the Pacific. Well, the thing is, the, the workforce, whaling workforce is so diverse that it automatically shakes these things up. And plus also these Pacific Islands become very diverse because there are Europeans, uh, what are called beachcombers in Pacific studies, historic, uh, in Pacific studies field. These beachcombers, you know, British, Americans, runaway sailors, convicts, who take up residence uh, in these islands and have children and wives and so forth. And so both the ship and the islands uh, very quickly become complicated settings of different kinds of people interacting. And so when the ship meets the island, um, it's not so easy to say this is Europeans versus Indians. And um, I did somehow stumble across a phrase that I liked uh, in terms of to capture this uh, diversity uh, as colonization's workforce, um, because it would be, uh, you know, Indian, um, Indians from New England are out in the Pacific, and initially in the research I was hoping in the back of my mind or expecting or what I was looking for was a kind of indigenous commonality uh, fellowship you know, that um, the New England Indians would be able to see or would recognize when they were in Hawaii or the Marquesas that the same process that had happened to them was happening there at this place. And they just, uh, if they did see it, they didn't write about it. And instead, you know, their commitment is to the ship. And it's the same even with... um, uh, many of the Pacific Islanders who are picked up, you know, if a, a whale sh- an American whale ship picks up a bunch of um, Hawaiians at Honolulu and they go off to um, uh, New Zealand uh, or stop at um, Samoa or, you know, anywhere, uh, then they aren't, necess- they aren't really the the same people. Europeans see them all as Indians. And up until around the 1830s, that's what the uh, Euro-Americans, maritime Euro-Americans are calling uh, Pacific Islanders. They often call them Indians. Um, And so they recognize it's kind of the same process. Uh, They're going out and they have a kind of romance of discovery and they're, they're going out and uh, conquering uh, islands and native people. So they have the same logic, but it's the, the, the workers who are caught up in this industry um, do not seem to um, seem kind of more caught in between, and they tend to, their interests are with the ship. Uh, not necessarily with the Europeans, but with the ship. That, that is why they're there. That's where, you know, 
Uh, and the Pacific Islanders, you know, just, you know, if they go, let's say the Hawaiians go to the Marquesas, uh, often the, the Hawaiians might be used as interpreters. Um, uh, but uh, when, so that the uh, whale ship, uh, the, the American New England whalers can communicate with uh, the Islanders, but the, in these, particularly when the sort of violence often broke out in these exchanges or um, there were conflicts uh, that erupted, and there it's, it's like, it's clearly the ship versus the island, mm. you know, and it kind of doesn't matter who's, who's on which. So there are a few instances where it, it doesn't end up that way. But, and so I, I give some instances um, of the um, two whale ships in particular uh, from the 1830s, um, the uh, Awashanks and the William Penn, um, and the ways in which um, New England Indians or Pacific Islanders who were on board these ships um, we could fall victim to uh, the islanders uh, is there's some sort of conflict that breaks out between the islanders and the ship. Yeah. So I know we're um, skipping over one of the sections in your book here, uh, but you know, want to leave something for the oh, future yeah. readers. But I do want to, um, I do want to, as we as we get towards the end of our time together, I do want to ask about the book's final chapter, um, which you titled "Degradation and Respect." It's in this fourth section about the reservation as another space, but one that looks quite different than the mobile spaces that you've been exploring throughout the rest of the book. And I just want to ask why you concluded on those two themes, degradation and respect, as you get towards the end of the 19th century and and the slow diminution of the whaling industry in New England. Um, yes, it is kind of a, um, a bit of a controversial Choice. It sort of, I think, came up as I was in the review process for the book because most people would expect that I would start with New England the most, you know, um, and yet I save most of my discussion for New England for the end of the book. Uh, and the reason for that is because I wanted to show, to highlight the contrast between the ways in which uh, Indians earned respect as officers on the ship, but how none of that mattered uh, at home. And so uh, instead of starting, I guess, with the usual, it's also the usual story. I mean, New England Indian history, it's it sort of, in a way, that that chapter talks about a lot of the things that uh, the other major books on New England Indian history talk about. Um, the sort of development of the reservation system, uh, the role of these uh, overseers or guardians in sort of regulating uh, Indians, the sort of discriminatory language applied to Indians, um, the ways in which um, Indians struggled for autonomy, such as the Nashville Revolt. Um, And so um, I save it for the end because... um, I, I, as I say, I want people to see, to have seen the sort of Indian whalemen first and then to return to them at home, and particularly because that chapter contrasts the uh, concept, the ideology of degradation that white New Englanders use uh, that 
white New Englanders applied to Indians, that they were degraded people. And they used to use that word constantly, a degraded people. And, um, and then the chapter uh, turns to, more towards the Indian point of view and their puzzlement at how their whaling work had no impact on that ideology of degradation. So, um, and, you know, I don't have that much uh, commentary on it, but I do have a few Indians at, like, uh, Massachusetts uh, hearing at Mashpee, for instance. Uh, some of the uh, Indians there talk about their whaling careers. And, um, and so I, I uh, also, in that chapter, end with uh, some of the, the men who early in their lives were whalemen, but who became, uh, you know, highly, who were highly respected in their own communities by other Indians, uh, most particularly Edwin Vanderhoop at uh, Gayhead. Um, and so it was to sort of contrast this uh, lingering ideology uh, perpetuated by whites that Indians were this degraded race uh, and um, with the ways in which the, the Indian communities themselves um, used their whaling past as evidence of their abilities and self-worth, mm. and particularly to try to end the book by bringing it up a little bit to the present, where to talk about um, like Amos Smalley, who's one of the last of the uh, Indian whalemen. Uh, he was uh, from Gayhead and uh, did a wonderful little um, uh, sort of collaborative essay uh, that appeared in Reader's Digest about his whaling career. Uh, I killed Moby Dick, it's called. And um, so Amos Molly was sort of the last of the whalemen. And you go up to the day head today, his, uh, you know, you can see the um, possessions of Amos Molly's and photographs of him and the uh, tourist shops that tribal members run up on the cliffs. And so I was trying to sort of end on the Indian perspective and their perspective about whaling is, respect, that it was something uh, for which their people deserve respect. Um, so I've been speaking with uh, Nancy Shoemaker, author of Native American Whalemen and the World, Indigenous Encounters and the Contingency of Race. It's just released uh, from the University of North Carolina Press. You also have an edited volume that came out last year uh, with University of Massachusetts Press called Living with Whales, Documents and Oral Histories of Native New England Whaling History, which sounds also like a wonderful text um, that could be really helpful in teaching. Uh, before I let you go, I, I wanted to ask you a sort of broader question at the end. I, I've tended on this podcast for no particular reason to interview a lot of junior scholars, people who are just coming out with their first book in the field. Um, and so as someone who's published now in this field for two decades – um, I'm wondering if you have any broader statements about how you've seen this field of Native American history change um, since your time working in it, and, and particularly perhaps Native history in the 19th century, which I've found um, is often a real gap in the historiography, that, that histories of Native people in New England and elsewhere tend to trail off after, after let's say, the War of 1812. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I've been in the business a long time. Uh, when I was in graduate school, and this was the specialization I chose for myself, there were, it was 
kind of a very small field and it had a feeling of marginality. And it's hard to remember that because then there's been, I guess to use people who do maritime history, unfortunately tend to fall back on this all the time, but we rode a wave uh, towards um, more work, uh, you know, major prize winning books, you know, I mean, it's just been sort of amazing to see how all of a sudden uh, Native American history came to dominate, but it really is, you're, you're right, it came to dominate early American history mm-hmm. up to around the revolution. Uh, and, uh, and so that's where most of these, you know, major books have, have been produced. Um, and um, so, yes, I think the um, 19th century is uh, ready for for more, particularly, um, uh, yeah. Um, now, I have to say, um, my own, the whaling um, research actually really changed my perspective in a very different way, uh, that it's actually, in a way, taken me away from Native American history to some extent to make me more global. And so... Um, I find that if someone were to ask me about sort of new directions or what, what's the most exciting uh, stuff going on in the field right now, um, I'm much more interested in uh, I'm more I'm interested in U.S. and the world, including you know indigenous people in that experience. So it isn't as though I've abandoned Native American history. It's just I see it as I, I'd like to see more global work done uh, so that. Uh, North American Indians are not in these sort of isolated bubbles. Now, of course, the big transformation, the other big transformation in the field that's more recent is settler colonialism, Mm -hmm. which um, uh, I I consider sort of almost too narrow. It's kind of overwhelmed the field now where it's people are just using this term all the time and very loosely and uh, sort of like what, how people use the middle ground all the time, like, you know, uh, in the years after Richard White's book, Middle Ground, came out. So the settler colonialism is a new direction that's sort of supposedly comparative, but it's really just focused on British. It's mostly just done work on British-descended colonies. Mm -hmm. And because of my my whaling work, I've become much more interested in the Pacific. And uh, it's kind of like doing Indian history in a way, except it's, it's... and set in the Pacific, but it's very similar. Um, and so I, um, yeah, so, you know, I, I, I can see, yes, it moving to the 19th century, but um, I'd also like to see more people looking at uh, the U.S. and the world in, in the 19th century, mm. uh, before 1898. Yeah. Professor okay. Shoemaker, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was Nancy Shoemaker professor of history at the University of Connecticut and author of Native American Whalemen and the World, Indigenous Encounters and the Contingency of Race from the University of North Carolina Press. You can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com where you can listen to all of the past podcasts. We're also on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter at newbooksnatm. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening.